You know what happens when you flip a light switch? How many people, dollars, and computers are involved to charge your smartphone? Do you understand the policy implications, political landmines, and local issues as we transition to clean energy? Well, we're here to answer those questions and more. Welcome to No Power. Hosted by informed industry experts Noha Sidholm and Michael Borgatti, No Power is all about demystifying the entire energy industry without getting into the politics, getting you more involved in the discussion, and empowering you with knowledge to make an intelligent choice today and the future. Head on over to nopowershow.com or wherever you get your podcasts so you can listen and subscribe and never miss an episode. And now, here are your hosts, Noha and Michael. Welcome to the show. Today, we're talking to J.C. Neal, who is great to talk to. He is Vice President of North American Power and Natural Gas at ICE Intercontinental Exchange. You might not have heard of ICE itself, but they own the New York Stock Exchange, and ICE has actually been around a long time. They do all sorts of things from equities to commodities. Their core business originally was commodities. They are basically responsible for offering products that help your utilities hedge. So they really help keep prices down for consumers on the power side. They've also been great advocates for good policy and open and competitive markets. So JC's been there for 23 years, a long time, to really dig into these products as they evolve and meet industry's needs. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a great conversation because we talk about how these commodity exchanges work. I think the timing is great because if anybody has seen that holiday classic Christmas movie, Trading Places with Eddie Murphy back from the 1980s, they're actually talking about trading commodities there. That's what ICE effectively is, is a commodities exchange. And JC is talking about its inception as a commodities exchange that was sort of focused on power initially, but has brought into all sorts of other products that it offers there. One of the cool things that I think that we cover is how these markets interact, they relate to, but are different from the wholesale power markets that the ISOs and RTOs run, and really the critical role that ICE plays in providing a clear line of sight to revenues for folks that invest in the types of projects that we see in our space. So great episode, great conversation. Hope you enjoy it and hope you enjoy the show. Today, we're interviewing J.C. Neal, who is Vice President of Natural Gas and Power Sales for the Intercontinental Exchange, which is one of the largest commodity exchanges in the world. J.C. has been there for almost 23 years, really from the very beginning. He's a dear friend of mine. And also, I've really not met anybody in this industry that has not had positive interactions with J.C. He's such an expert in the space, such a problem solver. And I'm so excited to have him on our show today. So welcome. Thank you, Noha. I appreciate it. I'm happy to be here. Happy to get to spend some more time with you and Mike. And I hope I can live up to even 50% of what you just said. No doubt in my mind, JC. So really excited for the conversation here. Why don't we start with a little background on what is ICE? What is Intercontinental Exchange? I know Noha talked about it as a commodity exchange, but can you give us at a high level what it is that you guys do and what you're about over there at ICE? Sure. It's changed a lot since I've been here. In 2001, roughly President's Day when I started, there weren't very many employees. Jeff Sprecher had simply bought a small company that was built for hourly power trading in the TVA region, if you can imagine, for all that demand for five megawatt blocks on an hourly basis. Right. Yay. But... (laughs) Somebody back then had the foresight to think that there was a better way to have transparent prices and get more information to the market faster 
obviously it was sort of the beginning of, or maybe right before the tech boom, boom crush, however you'd like to say it at the end of the nineties. But Jeff had been building power plants. So was well aware of the market and thought that the idea of digitizing, of democratizing and making prices transparent to as many people as possible made a lot of sense. He literally ran it out of his checkbook for a while. By the time I started, we were just about to go live with some beta versions to a few electricity customers and natural gas customers in the US. And we did that around March of 01 with just a handful of guys. Turns out it was pretty popular. We were able to grow the business pretty significantly, very quickly, purchased the International Petroleum Exchange. Shortly thereafter, we had a little bit of a blip with Enron, but that turned out to be fairly fortuitous in that it highlighted the risks associated with bilateral credit, truly knowing your counterparty, understanding the real risks of the market. I think that Many of our customers had just sort of taken for granted that all these guys they dealt with for a couple of decades would always deliver and always be there. And of course, on the more traditional future size, people had already begun to figure out the benefits of multilateral netting, of having a bank representative or a clearinghouse associated as well could offer some insurances. So so late 2002, when we first launched clearing on Henry Hub, and then late 2003, when we launched clearing on Electricity Futures. But those early days allowed us to build a pretty good business where we were able to do some more acquisitions. Around the early 2010s, we purchased a company that included the New York Stock Exchange. And so now ICE is known globally as the company that runs futures markets, but also happens to run the elite market leader for equities trading as well. It's been a pretty fun ride. Quite a wild ride from a small power trading shop. And just to give some context to JC's point on the TVA, that's the Tennessee Valley Authority, which is even from the energy space, which is sort of like an arcane, sleepy little corner of the universe. TVA is amongst the sleepiest little corners there. It's a creature of statute. It's not really regulated by anyone. It essentially exists because of all of these dams that the United States government funded, gosh, probably close to a century ago now. And to start there and to move all the way to the place where now, not only are you one of the premier commodity exchanges on the world, you're one of the premier equity exchanges on the planet, too, is an impressive growth trajectory over a quarter decade sort of period here. It's amazing to see where you've ended up from the starting place. Yeah, well, a lot of it's hard work. Some of it's good timing, but it's also about the basic fundamentals that people need to manage risk and people need transparent pricing. And when you can provide good products, transparent pricing and open access or equal access, depending on how you like to say it, people will participate. That's really interesting that you say that, JC, is going back to open access, because I sort of grew up in a world where ICE always existed. And it wasn't until I entered sort of the Chicago prop firm world that I realized that CME was really the predecessor and you had to have a license and some of those licenses were hard to get and you had to purchase their stock. And it really was reminiscent to me of the power markets when they first started and having open access and introducing competition into the space and having transparency. And that really all happened around the same time to, I think, bring all of these benefits to consumers. 
And I really hadn't thought about the fact that that all really did coincide with the tech bust. So it's kind of amazing that despite having to climb that hill and deal with the financial issues at that time, these businesses have really been successful and continue to provide really solid benefits to the end user. And I I think most end users don't really grasp that. And that's part of the reason Mike and I started this podcast. Well, I think that's a great point, Noha. I certainly would agree with you. There are a lot of people in our industry, both from an equities perspective and a commodities perspective, that probably don't really remember a time when the only way you could trade was if you had a member or you were a customer of a member and you had a phone line and you had to call some guy shouting and screaming in a pit. And then you had to wait like 15 minutes for him to come back to you and tell you, did you get done or not? I recall fondly when we were first getting the business going, one of our early acquisitions was the New York Board of Trade, 2005 or six, all blurry to me now. But that was one of the first times I could explain to some of my friends and be like, hey, you know that part where they're yelling at each other and they're like, you know, buy OJ, sell OJ. We own that now. That's that's what we do. Yeah. Eddie Murphy, trading places, (laughs) frozen orange juice concentrate. Yeah, for sure. That's us. That's me. That's what I do. We're we're just trying (laughs) to put it on a screen so that people don't have to wait so long for that price information. There is certainly a benefit to having educated brokers as part of the process for certain types of trading. But the real key to all this was transparency. And the markets that were most successful at ICE early were our swaps markets that were OTC cash settled swaps. And the reason they were successful is because so many of our gas and power customers in North America were frustrated by having to call this one guy at the NYMEX wait for him to go over to the pit or yell to the pit or signal the pit, wait for a transaction, come back. And they had no idea if they were getting a good deal or not. They just knew they could get done. And so by bringing those swaps to a much larger section of the community via traditional voice brokers, then eventually via electronic trading, the market grew exponentially during the 2000s. And I'm sure NYMEX would hate to admit it, but we're a huge part of the reason they were successful because we sort of pushed them into this market that they really fought hard to stay out of. And that's a great point. Let's try to unpack that transparency piece a little bit, because I think it is like so fundamental to kind of ICE's business and frankly, to the way that the power ecosystem functions today here. The idea is that you guys are posting transactional information for folks, right? Like you're not actually a buyer or a seller. You're effectively a middle person, right? Kind of brokering these transactions in a way. But the way you do it is by providing information to folks so that they can see how the market is developing, how prices are forming. Can you talk us through that a little bit so that someone who's not familiar with looking at an ice cream could kind of understand how you're presenting that information? Sure. It's an excellent point. And I will say that I'm not sure I would be a good trader, which is why it's nice to be the house. As you said, (laughs) I don't have to have an opinion. I don't have to know if it's going up or down. My only job is to provide a mechanism so that folks who want to buy a particular power or any other commodity or sell have a place to do that. So we do that electronically. Folks can come to our screen. They pick an expiry, whether it's Cal 25 or today or even tomorrow, you pick, post your bids, post your offers, 
And we're just a matching engine at the end of the day. So we're a place for buyers and sellers of all shapes and sizes, all kinds of backgrounds, physical and financial players to come together in one central limit order book and complete their transactions. But there's also a level of protection between you and the folks that are trading, which is a futures commission merchant. So can you talk a little bit about your FCMs and how you guys work with them to manage risk in this space? I'm going to call you out a little bit because you always like to talk to me about our NGX model too. But (laughs) in traditional clearing models, how about we start there? In traditional clearing models, you're exactly right. There is a clearing house, which we also own and operate several of. And that clearing house does have member banks usually, but also just member financial institutions, occasionally a customer that will be a direct member. And those particular entities are there to represent the end users and customers in the marketplace. The idea being that I have a bunch of financial institutions or financial minded institutions that offer a layer of protection. So I have utilities all over the country or individuals all over the country. They may not have the wherewithal or financial understanding or even documentation to deal with each other on a bilateral basis. It may be that a company owned and operated by some large municipal wants to do a transaction with a small fund simply because they agree on a bid and an offer and a meeting price. They would never deal bilaterally in the historic sense, but because of clearing, they are able to transact. And so each of those end users has their own clearing member or FCM, Futures Commission Merchant, who represents them in that transaction. They then in turn have a transaction with the clearing house. And there are lots of different layers of financial guarantees and insurance and backstops that do the best they can to protect good actors. And I'll stress that good actors part because if somebody doesn't want to be a good actor, there's only so much we can do. The good news is the clearing model throughout history has been pretty exceptional of protecting folks, even in cases of malpractice. And that's a crucial function here. So to kind of connect the dots into creating this environment where folks trade. So you're taking effectively buyers and buyers are posting bids with you. This is the price that I'm willing to sell my commodity, whether it's power, natural gas, to go back to trading places, frozen orange juice concentrate or pork bellies. You then get an ask, right? Which is essentially what a buyer is willing to pay to buy that same commodity. And you post them, right? You'll create like an index, which will sort of close the spread. So let's say I was willing to sell at $10, right? Noha was willing to buy at 20. Perhaps the index would close at say 15. So we could see that information. And so now that's that transparency component. But the second piece is this vetting, this idea that you guys have done the hard work to make sure that the folks that are transacting with you are bona fide, they're financially sound, the source of their funds are all on the up and up and things like that. So now you have these parties who would otherwise not be in a position to sort of perform that function on their own. You've kind of taken and performed that service for them. And now they're in a position where they can leverage the transparency you're giving them by feeling comfortable that the parties that are on the other side of those bids and acts, they're all bona fide traders, they're all financially able to close these transactions, and you're backstopping those through these clearinghouses. Is that a fair way to kind of, at a high level, characterize it? Yeah, no, I think you did a pretty good summarization. I'm going to caveat it one piece here and say that it's not necessarily me or ICE that does all the vetting. Because again, as Noha pointed out, we're the clearinghouse 
we have the clearing members and those clearing members are truly the folks that are doing the individual customer vetting. As the clearing house, we're doing checks and balances on those clearing members, call it 30 to 40 different members, depending. And they're mostly large size entities with well-known financials, et cetera. So I would argue I've got the easy part. It's really the clearing members who are taking on all shapes and sizes of end users. And they've really got to have good KYC departments and really understand what they're getting into. Now, of course, we have newspapers, et cetera. So when we read about a customer who may have some issue, our first call is to the clearing member and say, hey, are you aware of what's happening? And 99 times out of 100, they knew before we did. And we're already having some sort of conversation around that. It's a pretty efficient process at this point. Yeah. And just for those of our listeners that don't know, KYC is know your customer, which the banks also typically do on traditional banking customers, you know, grandma going in to cash a check to make sure that they know who's bringing in the money, where's the money coming from? Are these good actors? Do we need to have any concerns and kind of ongoing due diligence on those customers? Yeah. On a very basic level, it's no different than applying for a loan, getting a mortgage, or buying a car. The lender is going to do some basic background checks on the customer and make sure they have faith that when the time comes, they're going to pay their bill. Yep. That sounds so simple when you sort of say it that way, JC. It's like it's totally identifiable to us whether you want to get a credit card, take out a mortgage or whatever. Oh, yeah, that's no big deal. We'll do a basic background check. But it's so fundamental to how all of this process works because it gives the market rich large, buyers and sellers, confidence that the parties that are trading on this exchange have been adequately vetted, that they're on the up and up and things like that. And so it creates the type of environment that then fosters these transactions and breeds the type of liquidity that you were talking about, right? The volume of trades and things. And so can we talk about that role? Because I think that that's unique. And maybe can we think about it in terms of differentiating you guys from a quote unquote conventional power market, like a PJM, like an ISO or an RTO, which you guys aren't, but you are sort of facilitating transactions and similar products, right? We are. And I'm not going to let you get me in trouble by saying something about an ISO. They're very different types of markets. So I would agree that at the core, at the very basic, both have a similar plan of bringing buyers and sellers together. Both have a similar plan of trying to provide transparency for the betterment of the market. You touched on something right before this question. You said the word confidence. And I think that that is a huge part of what, in particular, futures exchanges bring to the market. Commodities exchanges, equities exchanges, regulated exchanges bring to the market is confidence. We have to provide that confidence. Without that confidence, then the bids and the offers that we represent are meaningless. If people don't have faith that people are going to perform, whether they're buyers or sellers, then those markets don't mean anything. When we compare to an ISO, I'm going to say that for the most part, I think the ISOs do a really great job. They have a very, very hard remit. They have to be the end-all be-all to all of their stakeholders. They have to have the KYC They have to have the understanding. They have to be the risk management. They honestly have a much more difficult job than we have as the exchange. I get the benefit of having clearing firms who know 10 or 15 customers very well. And then I've got 10 or 15 of those clearing firms, right? You get the scale. The ISO in this case 
they have to know all thousand members of PJM or more. NOHA, you may know better than me how many stakeholders there are at PJM, but it's a vastly larger number. And sometimes I'll say the financials may not be totally transparent, is my understanding. (laughs) So they have a difficult process in that they also have to run a market. They have to deliver electricity in real time. They provide lots of data. It is a market that is absolutely necessary to the functioning of our futures markets, though. And I will argue that our futures markets are absolutely necessary to the functioning of those ISO markets as well. People who go to the ISOs to set a forward delivery schedule or purchase schedule for the actual electrons that are going to flow into our houses and turn our computers on and charge our phones, et cetera, they have to have the confidence that the ISO participants are going to perform. The way those ISO participants hedge so that they can have faith in their performance is by using the financial instruments, sometimes physical, that ICE or other exchanges offer. And by creating those hedges and hopefully removing the risks of non-performance, the ISOs can have better certainty that they're going to function and perform. I mean, you guys really work hand in hand, right? Like the ISO is also doing the physical dispatch and they are modeling all the outages so they can offer more granular contracts than you can now get on really any exchange. And then we take those forward prices and aggregate them in certain regions and look at those prices. And that's how we get pricing on the futures market. So one really can't operate without the other, I think. It's really important to have both pieces. And they can also hedge each other out. At this point, I think we're pretty symbiotic. But I think you hit a very key point is that the ISOs have a different fundamental remit. And it's literally the movement of electricity at the most efficient price across some region. And they have to dispatch. They have to shut down. They have to perform so many more difficult problems than I have. And then, oh, by the way, they have to run a quasi market for the performance. And that wasn't originally what they were designed for per se, but they've had to develop and they've had to implement because that's part of the efficiency and similarly transparency that those stakeholders need to make sure the price is indeed the most efficient outcome. Yeah. And it's really interesting that you say that because these markets I mean, you guys have evolved, obviously, significantly into now a global company, but these markets have also really evolved. They've added members, they've dealt with different types of infrastructure throughout the years, and we've really managed some pretty integral transitions in our power grid dynamics, first from coal to gas, now really a blend of gas and renewables and getting that mix right so that we can keep the lights on. And I'd be really curious to hear your perspective on how that has impacted you guys because investors are relying on the futures price curve, the forward curve you provide to say, okay, I think this asset's going to be worth X amount in a few years. How do I value my investment? I appreciate that. I think it's an excellent point and it speaks to the symbiotic relationship that ISOs have had with our exchange as well because of our customers, right? Our customers as each of us spoil our customers in different ways, the other of us is forced to evolve to meet those growing demands by the end customer. And that's been a challenge at times, but it's also been really exciting at times. I mean, you take some of the 
markets that have changed even in the last 20 years where we've moved from sort of seller's choice at a location. We rise up RTOs, we rise up ISOs, we create market clearing prices, et cetera. It's not like it all worked perfect. There were challenges along the way, but part of it is having the tools to appropriately hedge and risk management and being able to adapt. Certainly the ISOs have had issues. Exchanges and clearing participants have had issues. Being able to create new rules and processes and adapt to the changing markets is really key. As you said, we saw a little bit of that in cold gas switching, but I would argue that's a blip compared to the energy transition. Having to redesign markets for hugely intermittent production sources has been a real challenge that is ongoing. We're continually talking about different types of products or modifications to products in order to accommodate. I mean, look, there is simply a different load profile or generation profile, depending on your perspective, in a market that is 40% solar. And how do I keep the lights on when 20 years ago I had a solid 16 hours a day in a peak curve to provide funding and payback on an investment for a natural gas plant? Well, now it's down to four to eight hours if you're lucky, depending on the true shape and how much sunlight, what type of year there is. The famous duck belly problem for those familiar with the West Coast markets. And the problem is now my payback window is much smaller and yet the sun doesn't shine at night. So where do I get the power from at night? Sure, there's hydro. If you're lucky, maybe there's some nuclear. But the reality of it is the cleanest alternative is still going to be natural gas. And if the payback window is small, that means that the price must be high. And so if you look at some of these more progressive transition states, I'll pick on California just because they are probably the most progressive and largest, certainly, across the state is one of the highest retail power prices of anywhere in the country. So yes, it's true that they have all this free electricity, but when it's not free, it's actually very expensive. And so on average, it ends up being fairly expensive. As a former California resident, when I got my first power bill, I was shocked, just absolutely shocked, which is interesting because smaller footprint, but Texas also has done a great job of integrating renewables has, I think, a better functioning market and has not passed on quite those costs to consumers. I think Texas consumers are still paying some of the lowest power prices in the country. So it's really interesting to see how different states do it and just how regional the space is. But you're right in that, how do we price these things so that we can basically value the asset and keep the lights on? But now you guys are also working on environmental products and different pieces to sort of value attributes in the space? And how are you guys tackling some of those challenges and bringing that product suite together? Thanks. It's a good point. And I will echo what you said about Texas too. I think part of it is stubbornness in Texas. There's just the right mix of conservatives who refuse to do anything green and price sensitivity and a few forward-thinking folks that say, well, we got to have some. But I think that's a great lesson for the entire energy transition is that it takes time. You can't just go fully green overnight. You're going to run into problems. You have to be thoughtful in your approach. 
But as you know, NOHA, we're still struggling here in Texas to find ways to incentivize new natural gas infrastructure. I think the state has done a good job of understanding that there are going to be times when you have to rely on carbon sources right now. Thermal sources are going to meet a big percentage of the needs for production. Certainly happy to have 30,000 wind, certainly happy to have 20,000 solar when they work. But when they don't, we have to have backup. I'm happy to consider nuclear as an option. That's relatively unpopular domestically for some reason, but we don't have to get into that. So that believes natural gas unless you want coal. And I don't think anybody is too excited about coal outside of the mid-Atlantic right now. So you have to be thoughtful in these approaches. And that comes honestly back to us. How are we as ICE preparing for the transition? Well, part of that has been that we've continued to launch environmental attributes, whether they be emissions or credits, recs, however you want to qualify it. They're all, as you said, sort of environmental attributes. We're the global leading exchange for those products. And we are very proud of that fact. It is something that we have to keep up with on a regular basis. As you know, we just launched credits in Washington state. That was really hard work. It's still evolving is probably a fair way to say it. We are optimistic that over time, these products will serve the function that they were created for, which is how do I adequately price and make transparent the value of the transition, for lack of a better word? Because that helps us understand where is it appropriate and when it is appropriate to make investments in different types of generation. And can I get the paybacks that make it worth it? Mm -hmm. That's a really important point, right? Because we hear this narrative all of the time that renewable resources are incredibly inexpensive. And I think that's true when you just look at the production cost of the energy that they are producing, right? They don't use fuel. Their variable operations and maintenance costs are typically pretty low, right? Because they don't have to use chemicals and things like that to clean their emissions and things. They don't really have any emissions. But that's not to say that there is not a cost to actually building that solar facility or that wind facility in the first place, right? And so you have to be able to capture that value, whether it's through a REC or some other type of environmental attribute, or whether it's through a forward type of product or things like that, or sales directly through an ISO or RTO. At the end of the day, there's a sum of dollars that investors need to see coming out of those combined sources to be able to say, I believe in deploying capital behind these assets, right? And that's where you're talking about sort of that innovation is to be able to take the model that you guys built through this area, defining these products, defining the pricing parameters for them, and then applying them in this new way to satisfy this new suite of constraints, right? The transition here. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's no such thing as a free lunch. And it always makes me laugh when you hear people talk about free wind and free solar. Well, no, it's not. <laughs> it was actually very expensive to build all those things. The good news is once you have gotten over that sunk cost hump, it is very cheap. It is very competitive, much in the same way nuclear is, right? Different problems. As you said, you have some chemicals, you have some other issues. But once you get that nuke built, it's actually remarkably cheap and remarkably efficient as baseload. And so that has been part of our whole goal as we listen to the feedback from our customers as they evolve. Well, we had gas and power markets and we had coal markets. There's actually very little coal that trades on the open market anymore, owing to the fact that 
most of the more developed nations have moved away from coal to a great extent. But as coal has moved out, reliance on natural gas increased for a time. But then these new different products, solar, wind, et cetera, began to crop up and said, well, I need these other tools to help me value the whole basket. And that's where the environmental attributes came in. As you said, a big part of what we do is provide transparency for future investment. And if we don't have good transparent markets that encompass the major parts of the expenses, then we're not serving those needs for the investors. And so that's part of how we think about approaching these markets. Yeah, and I think we've swirled around that a little bit, but maybe we should just touch on what we're talking about in the futures context here is if you think about what an ISO or an RTO is doing from an energy side, they're pricing a forward product, but they're really only pricing it essentially a day ahead, right? So they will run markets today for the power that they think they're going to need tomorrow. Some of their products will price a little farther into the future than that, but the window is typically very small. And what a firm like ICE is doing is taking and through those futures products saying, you can transact today for a winter strip, or you can buy on or off peak for a given month into the future. You're extending that horizon out and you're taking a transaction that is essentially almost a real-time transaction and spreading it into the future, right? That's really one of the critical sort of functions that you guys are providing is creating that transaction horizon out into the future, right? That's right. It's a forward-looking price, whether it's crude or natural gas or electricity. On average, we have 10 or so years of forward visibility with real open interest. And that open interest means that there have actually been transactions. There are people that are buying and selling and taking a true position on the value of things 10, 12, 13 years into the future. And what those forward curves allow for is investment firms, banks, generators, et cetera, to make longer horizon decisions. The truth is that it takes 20 or 30 years to get payback on $400, $500 million production facility, whether it's wind, whether it's solar, whether it's gas or whatever it may be in the future. And so having some certainty or at least a really good opinion slash guess about the future cash flows is what allows for that investment today. Yep. And that's that critical function. So like the whole circle of ice and where they fit into our universe kind of comes together right there for me is that you have this transparency, as you said, like these are actual buyers and sellers that are putting their money to work 10 or 15 years forward, right? And they're saying, I believe that the price of power or the price of environmental attribute in 2035 is going to be X, right? And you're publishing that information. So if I'm thinking about building a power plant, I can then go to a place like ICE, look at what the market is valuing that commodity at over time and saying, do I like that? Is that enough for me to believe that this is going to be a durable revenue stream out over a couple of decades? It's one thing to say tomorrow it's worth a whole bunch of money, but like you say, right, I'm going to be investing over a multi-decade horizon here. Couple that up with the idea that through your platform, the folks that are trading are vetted, right? These are very competent folks that have an informed view on how the market should work. So we have a general degree of confidence that these are well thought out positions that they're taking in the market. And so that optimization right there, those three pieces of sort of your line of business is what actually kind of 
makes this whole thing function. And then it links back to those ISOs and RTOs because people are imagining in the future, this is how these plants will get dispatched. This is how the universe will work. They're taking a view on all of these changing fundamentals, baking those assumptions into the prices that they're buying and selling at. And that for me is kind of completes the picture, right? For how ICE fits into this investment spectrum. Does that sound right to you, JC? Does that fit together for you in a similar way? Yeah, absolutely. I'm just going to make one slight adjustment because I think you hit so many good points. I'm going to add one more to it. When you go and look at those forward curves, as you said, you get to make your own opinion about whether or not those forward curves represent the actual value. But even better, you get to use those forward curves to de-risk your investment. Because when you decide what you think the cost of your total life cycle is, you then get to go to these futures markets and buy or sell, depending on what your facility is, and you get to lock in whatever that spread is. And so that's part of the beauty of all this is it's not just a transparent way to see what the value of the future is. It's a transparent way for you to go in and protect your long-term investment so that you don't have to worry about it. You get to go to sleep at night knowing you locked in 15%, whatever your number is that you're looking for. Yeah, that's such a great point, right? Is you're monetizing that value. You can do that in real time. I see prices in the future that are better than my cost to produce power. I can monetize that today. I can grab that revenue now. Almost doesn't matter what happens in the future because I've already transacted in a way that's locked in some value for me. Well, quite truly, it doesn't matter what happens in the future because you have locked it in. I heard a really good anecdote not long ago where there was a company that went out and it was going to build a particular, I think it was solar, anyway, solar farm. So they went out, got a bunch of buyers for that offtake. And in the time where they were busy doing the project to where they actually got to put steel in the ground, they were able to just go out and buy the electricity on the whole life cycle of the deals they had committed to for cheaper than they could actually go build the product. And they just sold it to them. So they never put anything in the ground. They just, (laughs) hey, stuff like that happens. But again, that's the benefit of having these forward curves and being able to do long-term planning, having those hedging mechanisms. And somebody was able to build that at an economic price based off forward price signals and lock in their premium so that they could sell them the power at a cheaper price. And I think that's the part that I really want to drive home on our podcast is these pieces that sort of seem to work separate or not mainstream. They all work together so that at the end of the day, when a regular customer gets their bill, there's significant savings because somebody was able to lock in a premium or make sure they were hedging their exposure financially or decide, I don't want to put steel in the ground. I've already sort of fulfilled this need that I've committed to provide. And that saves the customer money because we don't want very expensive, unnecessary steel in the ground either. We want to be able to optimize. And I think you're hitting on something that we talk about a lot in our industry amongst the folks that participate every day, but gets lost going to the consumer, which is we understand that a nice tight bid ask ultimately is saving consumers money because that bid ask is informing efficient investment. It's informing efficient hedging. It's informing, even if we go to the FTR market, for instance, right? 
these auction results are helping the ISOs and RTOs understand where do I need the most efficient new transition to equalize these unequal prices. And so the long-term effects of this total symbiotic relationship serve the consumer to get the lowest total price. If these markets didn't exist, if ICE didn't exist, if ISO internal markets didn't exist, there would be a vacuum filled by somebody who's quite truly just a profiteer and would come in and say, well, sure, I have electricity and the price is $100 a megawatt hour. And unless you can prove that it's not, that's what it's going to cost you to buy it. So that's what these efficient, transparent markets have allowed is for all of the load-serving entities out there to more ably and more efficiently serve their end-user customers. It's not to say some of them aren't going to make money. I mean, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that the market is more efficient today than it ever has been. Right. And they may be making $2 today, but saving the customer $10 over the span of however many years. A hundred percent. And just for the benefit of our listeners, JC mentioned an FTR, which is a financial transmission rate, which in the organized power markets in the U.S. is essentially the price of congestion from point A to point B, really very similar to when you're driving on a toll road and the cost of the toll goes up and down with the volume of traffic. But an FTR is just the forward value of the price of that congestion on the power grid. Yeah, I think that's right. And to really hit home, I'm going to steal your car analogy because it's one we used to use all the time is when you think about transparent prices and whether or not it benefits the consumer, think about filling up your car. If there's a gas station right next to your house that charges $7 a gallon, but you could drive another mile and pay $5 a gallon, what are you doing? Taking the ride. That doesn't mean there isn't going to be that emergency where you're paying $7. I get it. But for the most part, you're going to make the effort, maybe even slightly more expense because I've got to drive that extra mile, but then you're going to use the cheapest possible fuel. And that's really what an ISO is designed to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's also what you guys are facilitating when you're talking about that efficiency, that ability for folks to transact. You're creating almost sort of visibility into all of the gas stations that are around your house and all of their different prices so that you can see all of that information. And right to your point, make the decision. I'm going to drive the mile today. No, I'm going to go to the place next to my house for all of those reasons. And that becomes a huge efficiency here. I also imagine is that durability of that model is important as we ride through these natural, I'll call them significant or meaningful events that happen in our universe here. You talked about Enron in the early 2000s. That was, I think, a watershed moment that folks still think deeply about around here. But one of the ones for me recently has been just the degree to which this has become an international or the energy market generally have become a much more international market, particularly on the electricity side. I think oil and to a degree gas had been international products for a long time. But on the power side, we're sort of seeing this become a much more globalized market. Has that impacted you guys? And if so, how is that affecting your business over at ICE? Well, I appreciate the optimism on gas being a very international market. We still believe that gas is actually in the infancy of being an international market. The leaps and bounds that it's made in the last couple of years are incredible. But when we look back at the formation of, say, the U.S. gas market going back to the early 2000s versus where we are today, it's almost incomprehensible. And we expect the same for the global gas market. The unfortunate Ukraine-Russia invasion of a couple of years ago 
really brought natural gas to the global consciousness as far as an energy source. I think people had for decades understood that I need oil globally to make gasoline and heck, even heat homes and diesel, right? But natural gas was just sort of this thing that was always there. And it came from somewhere on my continent and it came from that guy's backyard or whatever it was. And I ran it in pipes. Going back to 2010, roughly, we listed our first LNG contract, which was for JKM, Japan, Korea marker. At the time, and starting to do so again, the Japanese market was a major importer of natural gas, though there were, frankly, very few exporters of natural gas at the time. But it was a way to sort of help the global market understand the value of investing and building the infrastructure to get more gas to the Japanese market. Fast forward 10, 12 years to the Russian invasion a couple of years ago at this point, and there was a big misconception because the price of gas in the United States had also been rising in concert with the invasion. But what's interesting is that we only in the United States have these days, just round number, call it 12 or 14 BCF of export per day. So if the price is $1,000 over there and the price is $5 here, I'm certainly going to export every single molecule I possibly can. Unfortunately, I can only export 13 BCF out of the 100 that we're making every single day, right? So there are some great charts out there. I'm sure you can look it up. We've published a few that show the volatility of the markets in in Europe as they approached $150, $200. The price here, relatively speaking, isn't moving. Yes, it was high, but that owed more to issues with storage and other domestic issues than the fact that Europe needed gas. And so even today, as things have cooled down in Europe, we're still pumping out that full 14 BCF a day because even a mild European market is more expensive than our market here. However, what we have seen is that the TTF market, which is a Dutch market, has become a balancing market of sorts for Europe in that they have lots of storage in the area. They have lots of pipes that lead onto the continent. And therefore, they can both store and export gas domestically. What's been interesting has been watching that market grow from 10,000 lots a day, 20,000 lots a day to just this month, 350,000 lots a day. That market is growing leaps and bounds and continues to do so. The invasion created its own set of issues. Certainly, it was the first time that most of Europe truly understood where their natural gas comes from. Right. Russia. Most of it comes from Russia. Yeah, big piece of it. I think it highlighted that KYC, to bring this full circle, (laughs) know your customer, is an important part of any transaction. and it's usually a good idea to not be beholden to counterparties you can't truly trust on a long-term nature. So as there has been an effort for diversification, the problem is they still need gas. They're bringing in all the gas the United States can sell, They're bringing gas from Qatar. The good news is they've had a relatively mild winter last year, relatively mild summer. And so storage levels are looking good, but there's still a lot of anxiety over what the winter will bring, thus the volumes we're seeing in the futures markets. And so along with that is what's the derivative of natural gas? 
electricity. There are lots of different generation types out there. But for the time being, thermal remains the primary provider in most countries. I think the exception would probably be France, where something 70-ish percent is nuclear. I guess I could pick on Germany a little bit and say they are the highest wind power producer in Europe, I believe. I could be wrong. But similar to California, they also have the highest retail price of electricity. Over-reliance on these intermittent sources is a problem, just like over-reliance on Russian gas is a problem. As the price of gas became fully understood across Europe, citizens, outrage, all of these things is the first time that electricity became a substantial part of monthly expenses for a lot of European citizens. Outrage, they asked the government to cap the price. Well, that's great, except do you want it? Yeah, you still need it, right? (laughs) Yeah. So it's great saying I'll only pay 50. Well, if I'm only willing to pay a certain price, but the value is much more, then you're going to be the last person to get that commodity. That's just a fact. Now, interestingly, they set the cap so high that I'm not sure it was ever reached, though those politicians definitely claimed victory and said it was because of their cap that the prices never got there. So anyway, the good news is it's looking a lot better for Europe. That global gas price has helped create a more transparent European power price as well. And so what we're starting to see is across Europe, more focus on those electricity markets. And I would say it looks like a very early U.S. market going back to the mid-90s even in that you have some very advanced markets, but for the most part, most of the continent is still dark and is trying to reach a liquidity threshold where transparent prices are there every single day people can do a better job of planning their own infrastructure, et cetera, similar to how we've benefited here. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I've gotten a lot of outreach from some folks in Europe that are really interested in setting up sort of ISO RTO type structures. And it was fascinating to me that they started with a real-time market. So here we have the day ahead market and the day ahead market effectively plans for the real-time market. And I thought it was just kind of interesting that they went straight to let's price the real-time market I think that goes to, they basically want some cost certainty and some transparency in the real-time price. But I do think the next step of moving to implementing a day-ahead market is really beneficial, basically for reliability. You may remember better than me, Noha, or at least you were maybe more involved. But when I first got into the market, by far the biggest two markets were Synergy and PJM. And just colloquially, PJM, not a specific region or hub, but Turns out what it was actually was PGM West is what it was called in the bilateral world. And as they moved and evolved in the RTO space, the market that traded predominantly at PJM was, in fact, the real-time market. And I think that was because that was the more typical transacted product in the OTC space, whereas pretty much across the rest of the country, it was day ahead. And I always thought that was interesting, and I never really understood the full reasons behind that, other than most people looked at PJM and said, well, this is the most efficient. It just happens that that's the one that trades mostly in real time. Certainly, admittedly, today, there's a very robust day ahead for futures market in PJM. But for the most part, MISO, New York ISO, Nipool 
have remained primarily day-ahead markets. I guess ERCOT's probably a fairly good real-time market as well. And to echo what you said, we're seeing a lot of European interest in North American electricity markets. And I wonder if some of that is to gain experience as they are seeing their own local markets grow up and evolve. They can come to our markets, which are, you know, let's loosely say well-functioning, and they can participate and they can see the good and the bad. They can see the evolution. They get to be, or at least aware of the stakeholder processes and really understand the primary concerns that our ISOs here are dealing with as they're truly evolving their own markets in real time. Yeah, and it's interesting that you said, I think part of it is the transition is really pushing them to do that, right? Because inverter-based resources, when you retire coal and gas and can only rely so much on hydro, storage isn't really where it needs to be, you need more megawatts of inverter-based resources to replace the current fundamental assets that we've been relying on. So to go through that transition really makes you think, I really ought to rely on my neighbors because I'm going to need more megawatts. Where can I get those megawatts? Maybe I had to think about something like a regional transmission organization where we can move power more. And it was just fascinating that, you know, I had not followed the European markets that much. I keep pretty busy with the markets in the United States as is. But it was just really interesting hearing their perspective. And you're right at the beginning. And people are really creatures of habit. You know, even when we make changes to just breaking Inertia up. Inertia is a real thing. Right. I mean, even in PJM, when we broke up the FTR product to include a weekend peak so that a solar developer didn't have to buy every evening in order to hedge their weekend exposure, there wasn't pushback necessarily, but there were definitely a lot of people that were like, well, I have to modify my system for that. And we have to figure out how to break out the numbers for that. And how is the math going to work? And They were all legitimate questions, but it was just interesting to kind of see basically people kind of resisting a little bit because they were going to have to do something slightly different than what they had been doing. And I think that's, yeah, change change is scary. scary. And I think that's what's happening in Europe. Change is scary, but also change has a cost, right? And so for a huge percentage of status quo, there's no need for that cost. And that's one of the reasons that there is resistance. That doesn't mean that over time they may not figure out there is a better way to do it. They just haven't gotten to that education yet. They haven't seen the benefit of it yet. And part of our job as an exchange or market participants like you guys is education. And so interestingly, going back to something you said a second ago where you said, I may need an RTO because I need to rely on my neighbor. Similarly, my neighbor may need to rely on me. We all have experiences. We all have shared expertise. And so to the extent that we're all transparent with each other, not just in bids and offers, but in knowledge and how to and know all, et cetera, it's just to the benefit of the greater good. I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, if you think about some of the places in Scandinavia where you have high, say, offshore wind deployment, right, in one country that's next to another country that has lots of pumped hydro storage, right, and you literally have the ability to run effectively two countries on almost all renewable energy through that collaborative relationship. And I think that markets are what facilitates that. The transparency piece is also real, right? I fielded a phone call from a very large European utility not too long ago that was looking at offshore wind investments in Great Britain. And they were talking about like, why are my wind farms getting idled all the time? 
well, it turns out that there's lots of congestion at that point on the grid and there's not enough transmission to accommodate plugging all the wind in there. Well, Great Britain does have a power market, but there's only one price for the entirety of that grid. So you can't see that prices are very cheap in one part of the footprint, but not in another. And they're talking about now going to sort of a zonal and then perhaps a nodal price. And you're right. There was this combination of getting at the efficiency, like, ah, all else equal, maybe I wouldn't have put my power plant right here on the grid where there's not enough transmission had I known, right? But, oh my gosh, now how am I going to deal with that information here? So I think you're right. There is that kind of unequivocal value that I think people can see with the transparency and things like that, the liquidity and the value that that certainly provides. There is that tension with how do we kind of get there, which is where I want to turn sort of next to is what's the future like for ICE? Where are you guys going from here, right? It's been a heck of a journey to get to today. What does tomorrow look like for you? Well, obviously, I have to be careful about forward-looking statements. However... Oh, you're going to break news on no power here. It's all right. Your secret's safe with us. You know, our listeners are very discreet. We'll be fine. Next up, you're going to try to tell me you have none. (laughs) (laughs) No, in all seriousness, we're going to go where the customers tell us to go. I think that's been the real key to the success of ICE over the 23 years, 25 years we've been a growing concern is talking to our customers, talking to folks just like you guys and saying, what do you need? How can we service you? We're not always going to agree about the best course to get there. We may have to try a few iterations, right? But our core principle has been serving the customer, creating transparent prices for the benefit of the market at large. And I have seen examples of exchanges or other businesses who try to go and tell the market what the product should be versus those who take time to listen to their customers. Nine times out of 10, the guys that listen to their customers are going to have the best chance of success. And so I'd love to tell you, I know exactly what's around the corner, but the reality of it is I don't. I have to talk to my customers and I have to work with our customers to understand how we're going to meet their needs over the next decade. You're already seeing it, right? The explosion of environmental products is obviously important. I think there's likely to be other attributes associated with gas and power and other fuel services. I think one of the newer, less talked about, but still very interesting markets is freight. Most people don't think about it, but it takes a boat to move natural gas across the sea. It takes a boat to move oil or NGLs across the sea. So I think that those are markets that are really going to take off over the next decade. And then who knows what the next big thing is going to be, right? Like It's become so democratized to create markets on exchanges these days that if somebody comes to us and wants to make a market for Widget X, if I can find enough customers who have interest in Widget X, we'll do it. That's the cool part about transparency and digital technology is that we can go service those customers cheaper and faster than we ever could. So we've talked a lot about the transition, what's ahead, how we save customers money. There are obviously challenges that come with all of those things and challenges with all of the issues that we're grappling with today to handle this transition. This is something we like to ask all of our listeners. If you could wave your magic wand and get rid of one challenge, what would that challenge be? Well, at the risk of being too topical for a podcast that might not be published for a couple of weeks, I would use my magic wand to make Christian Javier throw more strikes and pitch better last night. 
because that was a <laughs> brutal beatdown of my Houston Astros. Yes, it was. Sadly, I don't have that magic wand, but if I have your magic wand, I happen to think markets work pretty well right now. I think that my magic wand would be focused around regulatory impediments. And I know that that is a broad term, but I think that oftentimes in regulators' efforts to improve markets, they can create rules that actually are impediments. And just as those of us that are customers or exchange operators are trying to evolve quickly, I would like to see a way that regulators could also more quickly adapt. And I'm look, I'm going to give a lot of credit to most of our regulators. I think we happen to be in a time where we're very fortunate to have some very educated, very smart people at the top, so to speak. It's not necessarily their wish that impediments stay as long as they do either. They are just processes. And look, we're all creatures of habits. We're all in the I want it now world, right? So the phone that you carry around gives you access to anything and everything instantly these days. And I think we all wish impediments could go away just as quickly as we could Google search the next impediment. So I think that would be it for me. I'd like to see harmonization of regulations globally to some extent. I am concerned about some of the capital requirements that are being floated around, but none of those are technically regulations yet. So I think that's where I would focus my magic wand is smart regulation that keeps us safe, but also helps our markets really function at their peak efficiency. That's a great use of a magic wand. I concur. We're in. So let's make that happen. <laughs> JC for president. That's it. Oh, no, 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 yeah. president. Can we make him president of a couple of different countries, perhaps? Maybe a continent or two, JC? What do you think? You know, I was going with puppet master. I don't really want to be the face <laughs> of anything. So, <laughs> well, the seeds. Absolutely. Well, I have to say this has been an absolute pleasure, JC. So thank you so much for joining us. Great conversation. I learned a lot. So thank you so much for your time. Yes. Thank you very much. And thanks to all our listeners. You've been listening to No Power, hosted by Noha Sidholm and Michael Borgatti. Head on over to nopowershow.com, that's K-N-O-W, where you can subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. We'll see you next time on No Power. No Power.